Welcome to the Fringe Element here on 440 Sports. My name is Braden Gall. You can follow me on Twitter at Braden Gall. Mine is Aaron Dugan. You can follow me on Twitter at the Aaron Dugan or and Insta. Yeah, you prefer Instagram. Aaron underscore Dugan. Rate, review, and subscribe to the show, please. Obviously, we still have the drunken rant from me that is still on the table for you, the audience. Should you give us, what, 50 reviews? We need 50 reviews. 50 reviews, and I will do a drunken rant on a Saturday night in real time immediately following all of the games that will cost me dearly the next morning with both my wife and my children and my my own personal well-being. But I will do that for you, the audience, if you review the show 50 times. And they have to be real reviews. It will cost me, yes, it will cost me time on Sunday, but will also bring me joy. So Review the show so you can bring Aaron some joy. That's what it's all about. A lot of stuff to discuss today. We have a great show for you guys. Really excited about our guest, Trey Crowder, who is a comedian, a diehard Tennessee fan, uh, grew up in the state of Tennessee. I've known him for a little while. Absolutely freaking hilarious dude. Whether you like his politics or not, it doesn't matter. He is funny as hell. Uh, And we actually do not say a single thing to him about any politics. We just talk SEC football. He's got some killer stories. He's a really funny dude. So uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, Again, you never know what you're going to get here on the show. So Trey Crowder coming up a little bit later on. You'll also hear from Chris Lowe, who was embedded with the Alabama Crimson Tide for ESPN, doing a story on the protocols as they will face Georgia this weekend uh, in the biggest game in all of college football. So we'll preview that game and sort of take you behind the scenes a little bit with what Chris Lowe did for ESPN. So really excited about our, our two guests today. It's very interesting. They're very different, but I was inter- <laughs> <laughs> wildly in fact, but I was extremely entertained by both. Trey is a lot. Oh, he's hilarious. He's a lot of person. I thought I was a lot of person to deal with. Trey's even more. Well, I thought you had a lot going on in the room where we record, but Trey is <laughs> next level. So stay tuned for both of those as well. Let's get into quickly sort of our recap and preview of week six and week seven. Let's start with with, with Alabama, Georgia, LSU, and Florida, the two big games, although LSU, good God. Uh, Alabama, Georgia, to me, is fascinating. Alabama handles Ole Miss with relative ease. I know they give up a bunch of points. Georgia handles Tennessee with relative ease. I know they were trailing at halftime, and Tennessee felt pretty good about itself. But I still think Georgia totally dominated that game. Alabama, totally. I, I don't think I ever was concerned about Alabama losing that game. Florida loses to A&M. So in the process of all of the stuff that happened last week, we are now set up with the last two unbeaten teams. One has some questions on offense. One has some questions on defense, but it is set up. It got flexed. By the way, the CBS game of the week has been moved to the the night slot, which they only do a couple of times a year. So we get Bama and Georgia, the last two unbeatens in the SEC, playoff teams against each other head-to-head on a Saturday night. Sign me up. I am so excited. And the only thing that would make this better is to be able to – have normal setup and be in a bar and just watch these fans get so mad at each other and super drunk and just you know that's just the best when when two teams that care that much and like you said they both think they can win the national title so the stakes are going to be high these people are just going to be mad in their house instead of together so it might be safer um but (laughs) if georgia can execute um and smart said this in a press conference the other day he's like if when we when we can execute, we're it's we're hard to stop, and he's he's not wrong. I also think that it will be it's going to be fun to see if the if Georgia's defense can force some turnovers, and I think that might be the difference maker in this game. Is yes, it is you know it's hard to put as, enough points up against Alabama as you would need to to pull this off, but if Georgia's defense can force a turnover or two and capitalize on it, I think it's going to be pretty close. 
I think Alabama's defense, Alabama's defense is better than what they showed against Lane Kiffin and Ole Miss. That was arguably the best game Lane Kiffin maybe has ever designed or called or whatever you want to call yep. it. Stetson Bennett, the fourth, doesn't say SEC national championship to me. He is a very sound, solid player. It says softball league MVP to me. He he doesn't scream national championship. Bama's defensive players, I think, could figure it out because they recruit lots of dudes. So right now, especially the games in Tuscaloosa, right now I would lean Bama and their defense being better than Georgia and their offense. But you cannot overlook the concerns you should have for Alabama's defense currently if Georgia can run the football. I mean, how many points do you have to put up if you're Georgia? I mean, with your defense? I mean, you normally would say like 27, 30, 31. But against Bama's offense, maybe 35, 38, 41? I don't know. That's a tough question. It's tough to put. I mean, 35 points against Alabama is a very real challenge. But... That'd be cool if they did it because then I would, <laughs> then I would uh, still be kind of beating you in the. So you're rooting for Georgia, is what you're saying? I'm only only because you and I have our Florida Georgia thing going on, not because I have a strong affinity for the dogs. Okay, you picked Georgia to win the East. I picked Florida. Currently, you are a game ahead of me. Yes. Florida's played a tougher schedule to date. No one likes excuses, Brayden. But. Georgia will probably have a loss after this weekend, so I feel pretty good about where we're going to be at this time next week when we have a conversation. Because I would take Alabama to win the game. That's fair. (laughs) (laughs) So you have nothing to add now. So, (laughs) moving on. You know, obviously this is such a big game. Um, I don't want to to undersell how big it is. I, I think the thing about Georgia against Tennessee and against Auburn the last two weeks is they have lined up and they have executed exactly what they wanted to do the entire time. On offense, that is. Defense, we know how good they are. They're the best defense in America. I think Alabama's the best offense in America. But Georgia's offense has lined up against Auburn and Tennessee the last two weeks and said, here's what's coming. Try to stop us. And it, neither team was able to do it. I don't know if you can do that with Bama. You know, Saban will figure out something. If you're going to be direct about it, Saban, you have to be different to beat Saban. Even if his defense isn't that great relative to his old defenses, Kiffin was able to do that. I, I don't know if Stetson Bennett the fourth can do that. Yeah, I think you're right that that Georgia, uh, with a lot of teams, they can just steamroll them. You know, here's what we're going to do. We're strong. We are great on defense. You know, we have a solid plan on offense, although it may not be the most innovative thing in the world. And they can beat you like that. But you're right in the sense that if you're going to beat Alabama, you have to have something coming out of the playbook that's a little more creative. And so we'll have to see that if they want to pull this off. It's old Bama versus new Bama. Bama is new Bama, and Georgia is old Bama. It's sit on you, suffocate you, squeeze the life out of you, give you the kill shot in the fourth quarter. Like, that's what Georgia is right now, which is like the way Bama used to be. Now Bama is like this, we throw it all over the place. You know, Mac Jones is just as good as Tua, you know, kind of craziness. So huge game coming up this week. I cannot wait. How, How will you be enjoying the game on Saturday? I love that it's after my children are going to bed. I love that. That's a good question. I, I don't have a game plan yet. I guess it just depends on if I'm, you know, if my car's working. If not, I'll be <laughs> watching it from my house. That's right. You're having uh, loose undercarriage problems. It's... Uh, That's a, Which sounds personal. Well, it's expensive to fix. <laughs> and it, as, as undercarriages according, tend to be. According to the car doctor, it is experiencing some some problems that may not be able to be irrevocable. Is that the right word? Uh, irreparable? Re- repairable. 
Irreparable. I don't, I don't think that's a, irreparable. Don't, irreparable damage. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Yeah, that's like 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 in a relationship, you cheat, and she goes, "Yeah, this is irreparable." I feel like my car is cheating on me. Mm. Also a personal problem. Yeah. So if your car is working, you will go do something Saturday night. No, actually, I don't know why I said that. There's <laughs> nothing to do. <laughs> you you just wanted to bring up your undercarriage. That's what you wanted to do on the show. It's loose. Yeah, it, again, that's a personal problem. You should get that checked out. We should definitely not keep talking about this. LSU in Florida. So, Georgia, Florida. Here's my message to your comment about our disagreement. You've got Georgia winning the East. I've got Florida. Okay. Just because Florida lost to a and I, I don't think it means a whole lot in the grand race to the championship game. I, I think they're, everybody's going to lose games, as I've said before. I think Florida's right there. I think they're just as good. I think offensively they're exceptional. I think they're going to destroy LSU this weekend, which really raises some questions about LSU. I, I don't know how many people are going to be in the crowd. I know Dan Mullen wants 100,000 people, which seems like a bad idea during a giant pandemic. But, you know, whatever, as long as it helps you win games, coach. Uh, I, I just think I, I think Florida is still right there with Georgia. I'm not just because you go down on the road and lose to A&M in a really close game with some bad officiating. Not saying that's the reason the, the officials are bad for both sides. I'm not ready to say like Georgia's significantly better than Florida. I still think they're neck and neck and they're racing to Atlanta. I don't disagree. And if you're Florida, I would argue that if I were Georgia or Florida, I'd rather be in the position of having a dynamic offense that was working with a lot of weapons. They're even pulling things out. I mean, they were good on the ground this week. They, I mean, they had a lot of options offensively. And I, the, Although often, often sometimes takes longer to gel than defense, especially when you're talking about the line. Um, defense sometimes just needs reps. So I think they're going to get better and stronger on defense over the course of the year. And I think that the fact that their offensive line is has already gelled and figured it out and they have a lot of weapons is going to fare well for them. What's fascinating is Dan Mullen said basically the exact same thing. And I would agree with you. I think there's an old way of thinking that normally defenses are ahead of offenses, right? You need reps, you need rhythm, you need tempo for offenses to be good. Excuse me, good. But in <laughs> but in 2020, what makes a defense good is physicality. The the reps in practice where you're tackling. Like Florida can't tackle right now. Alabama just gave up the most yards and points in like the history of the SEC to an unranked team in Ole Miss. LSU gave up 45 to a freshman quarterback in Missouri. Like LSU, Bama, and Florida. Those are the best recruiting teams in the league outside of A&M and Georgia. And they gave up 134 points. So I think it's a really interesting point that in 2020, normally you'd say defenses are ahead because they've had so many reps to tackle and to, and to hit in practice, but none of that's happened. And so the offenses are ahead because they're running these skeleton drills all summer long. And I, Dan Mullen said that, and I think it's a great point by you. You're basically saying that the defenses will work their way into shape. But if your offense isn't clicking now, it's not going to get much better. I think that you're... Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I think your defense is slow. I think defense can be a slow build, but I think the trajectory is in general upwards. I don't necessarily think that your your offensive... Uh, you know, schema chemistry is steadily on the up and up every week. I think sometimes there can be like an exponential jump, but you don't know when that's going to be. Yeah. This is the good news for Georgia that you are way ahead of the curve on defense as everybody else. The bad news for Georgia is that if everybody else's defense is going to continue to get better as the season goes along, your offense is going to continue to become more of a question. Yes. Right. So uh, last question for you on Florida, Dan Mullen, clearly the crowd would had an impact on the A&M game. There was, clearly more than the allowed number of people at Texas A&M, Kyle Field. And it mattered. There were some penalties late in the game that, that actually helped, uh, or throughout the game, that helped A&M in a big way. 
Dan Mullen wants continues to want a sellout at, at Gainesville in a state where that has been hit really hard by by COVID. My question to you. If you are a Florida Gator fan and you live within 30 or 45 minutes of Gainesville and you've got tickets to the game, are you going if there are going to be 90,000 people at the Swamp? Are you? Is that worth it to you? Not unless I'm sitting in a box by myself, was escorted there, and someone's like feeding me grapes. I don't think the grape thing is going to happen, but I do like all the other stuff. I think that the box, I mean, a, a, maybe, maybe a box, maybe. No chance I'm going. No I mean, I wouldn't going. probably just out of pure principle because I'd be mad that he wanted to and successfully had 90,000 people because that's a pretty shitty thing to do. Yes. My wife and I went to the concert. We went to a concert this weekend. The concert was totally potted out in socially distanced groups. We were roped off. You could not leave the pod where you were sitting. It was all outside. It was all outdoors in, in like literally in the middle of nowhere down by Chattanooga and Mont Eagle out in the in the in the forest basically and we were so spread out you could not leave the pod and, and there was only six of us in the pod unless you were going to the bathroom and that's it there was no beer tents no food stands no, you, you ordered everything on the app they came and delivered it to you you had a time you had to show up so it was all organized procedurals you had to have temp checks and everything we felt totally safe and it felt so normal and so wonderful but i don't think that would happen at a football game no <laughs> I mean, that wouldn't happen at any football game, much less this one. This this is not if all I can think about now is like, do we want to play? Do we want to have a normal twenty twenty one? Because if we start acting like this, then yeah, I just why? Well, and we'll get to Vanderbilt, which oh by yeah. the way, the first SEC game has been postponed due to COVID, and it so, won't be the last one. And it won't be the last. So we'll get to that. I, I just think to me, Dan Mullen saying this is the epitome of I will win at all costs, <laughs> right? Like. <laughs> That and that I, I that's probably an essential ingredient for any SEC coach is wanting to win at all costs. However, yeah. these costs are pretty high. Well, and, and again, college football ripe for corruption. College football is where Jerry Sandusky happens. It's where Art Bryles happens. It's where Jameis Winston happens. This stuff doesn't happen in the pros. It happens in college campuses because the the these little dictators that run these college football programs have all of the power. And again, Dan Mullen, come support the Gators so we can beat LSU this weekend. Don't care if a third of you get COVID. I, you know, I don't know what the number is, but whatever, you know. And I think they're going to win. They're going to crush LSU. <laughs> right. You don't need the fans in this one. Just let's stay safe, please, so we can keep having more SEC football games. I like that. How about that? It's a good idea. Uh, all right. We'll get to Vanderbilt, Missouri. and But real quickly, uh, Alabama beats Ole Miss. The last time Kiffin and Bama played, uh, Saban and Kiffin played in the SEC, it was 12 to 10. Back in 2009, when Kiffin was at, at Tennessee, by the way, the toughest anybody played that 09 Alabama team. They went undefeated that year. The only team that Saban has has gone undefeated. This year it was 63-48, a little different, uh, and one of the worst performances by Alabama defense of all time. And Lane Kiffin let it slip that he, Will Muschamp, Jeremy Pruitt, and Kirby Smart are all on a text chain because they all, quote, have the same father. <laughs> two, two questions. And then, of course, Kirby, I guess, texted Kiffin and was like, the first rule of Fight Club is we do not talk about Fight Club. And then Ki and then Kiffin went and put that one out on social media, too. So he, he keeps outing Kirby Smart this whole time. He doesn't care. No, he doesn't. <laughs> he never has. <laughs> he just doesn't care about anything. I I'd like to. I'd like some wild speculation on what is on that text chain from Aaron Dugan, chief senior text correspondent. It's not about COVID protocols, as they claim. No, I mean, I think you and I kind of briefly talked about this. 
I mean, it would seem like maybe they're talking trash about Jimbo. What that's so? Are they talking shit about Jimbo Fisher, who is also a Saban assistant? He is his father, Saban is daddy, but not not on the text chain. Why didn't Jimbo get the invite? So are they talking shit about Jimbo? Or are they talking shit about Nick Saban? Well, I think they're definitely talking shit about Saban. Of course. Um, but we could also speculate that maybe Jimbo just wasn't into it and removed himself from the group, which I I'm do that to group texts all the time. Do you think Kiffin just sends like memes? Yes. Of like half naked old men with like Saban's face. <laughs> this is Lane Kiffin's like Tuesday night. He sits up and he game plans offensive scheme to attack the next team's defense and photoshops Nick Saban's head on fat old people's bodies. Yeah, he definitely has the face in the whole app where you can just drop <laughs> a face in, into a photo. And um, I have a feeling that he sends like four or five texts before he gets a response. Don't you think it's like He's all, it's texting. left? It's like left heavy. It's like laying all on the left. And then like every <laughs> once in a while, someone's like LOL or like likes a message. Yeah, yeah. Jer- Jeremy Pruitt is just thumbs up. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Jeremy Pruitt just sends the thumbs up on everything, which is the universe. For those that don't know, the thumbs up is the universal symbol for the conversation is over. I've just, I decided this. Oh, I think that's fair. You, you, if you're done with a text conversation, let me give you guys a trick here. If you're done with the text conversation, you don't have to figure out a weird, awkward way to end it. Just give a thumbs up and stop texting. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like the equivalent of, it's the emoji equivalent of the letter K. Exactly. We've evolved. <laughs> K. Past the single letter to a picture of a yellow hand uh and what does will muschamp do you think will muschamp's like oh guys let's not talk about coach this way <laughs> like is, is that the way is that will's role in this if anyone foursome? yeah come on man that's probably his role also wait Jeremy can we Pruitt, stop thumbs up, thumbs up do thumbs you up. remember when i um at athlon spent time digitally making will muschamp spontaneously combust on the sidelines I, i'm gonna go back and find that video see if you can find that because i do remember what you're talking about i'll find it he, well, do, he looks like he's about to spontaneously combust. But what's funny is that that's not how he acts in real life. I haven't met him. Uh, although that might happen if South Carolina keeps playing the way they are playing. So Could. Um, we we shall see. I just am curious why Jimbo Fisher didn't get invited. <laughs> I need to know. He it, it, it he does not fit, though, to me. It seems like the, the summer football SEC head coaching camp, like he's the camp counselor. Saban owns the thing. Jimbo Fisher's the, the second in charge that wears like really short shorts and has a clipboard all the time. <laughs> And then the other four, Kiffin, Muschamp, Pruitt, and Kirby, are like the four guys that you know. They're like the they're like the camp counselors, right? Yeah. Like the, these four are the ones that are out there, like mm-hmm. you know, hey guys, let's go, let's go swim across the island to the girls' camp, you know? Yeah, Jimbo's just like and Jimbo's like, you guys get back here, trying to get some sleep. <laughs> right. Uh, all right. Speaking of Jeremy Pruitt, the Tennessee Volunteers will play Kentucky. I, I, my message to Tennessee fans with the Georgia game is. I don't know what other logical conclusion was going to happen. You got dominated from the word go on both lines of scrimmage. I know you had the lead and there were some turnovers. Don't blame the quarterback for all of that. You got destroyed on both lines of scrimmage. It was going, the dam was going to break and Georgia was going to win. My, my response to that though, my follow-up is Aaron, I don't think Tennessee fans should be that worried about where they are. They're not there yet. They weren't supposed to be there yet. I know that's not how fans think, but Georgia's up here. They're a playoff team. Tennessee is in the early stages of the third year of a rebuilding process. They're getting better. They need to go out and win games like Kentucky this week. Got to win. You got to beat Kentucky this week. You have to. I, and you're right. There, Just because you lost to Georgia doesn't mean that any part of your season is shot. I mean, and at least you had a good first half. I mean, I know that kind of sets like you up to get victory. your heart ripped, ripped out, but there's some exciting stuff on, you know, it wasn't, it was fun to watch at the beginning. It was a great, it was a fun first half. It really was. Yeah. And, and you have to be able to, 
finish, but you don't have to be able to finish against Georgia to avoid having a terrible season. Yes. Like, it's, it's Georgia. You could still get to six or seven wins. Yes. But you have to win all the games you're supposed to. And Kentucky is one of those. Absolutely. And Kentucky's way better than its record indicates. Chris Lowe is going to talk about that a little bit later coming up. It's not going to be easy. They just totally shut down Mike Leach in, in Mississippi State. They probably should have won the game against Ole Miss, and you could argue we're equal to Auburn in week one. So they, they've had a weird stretch, Kentucky has. They're better than their record. But Tennessee and Pruitt, they're 2-0 and against Mark Stoops. You know, I, I think this is going to be a very, very good game. Where There's only one ranked game this weekend. I think Kentucky-Tennessee is very, very good. And, and uh, again, Pruitt's 2-0 and against Stoops, so we'll see about that one. I, I think it's all about can Tennessee's defensive front stop Kentucky's rushing attack It'll be interesting to see because their their defense was awesome against Mike Leach. As we talked about last week on the pod, sit back, play play zone, and you can beat Mike Leach. I think it will be very telling, but it's not going to be easy, and Kentucky is going to really want to win. <laughs> I think Tennessee's a little bit better on the offensive line, even though Kentucky's very good. I think Tennessee's a little bit better at quarterback. I think Tennessee's a little bit more talented on defense, but Stoops is maybe a more established guy. I think it's a very even match. I'll take Tennessee close, but I don't have any feel for how that game's going to go down. I think it's going to – I think it will be decided on a field goal. Along the same lines of the message to Tennessee fans, the same thing with Jimbo Fisher and A&M, the same thing with Auburn and Gus Malzahn, Dan Mullen in Florida, you only have one loss. Georgia or Bama is going to have another loss this week. There's only going to be one unbeaten team. You're all still in the race. Yep. Just win your way back in. You're all – well, I mean, I guess some people have – losses to teams that they really didn't want to have losses to but you're right there will be only one unbeaten team after this weekend so maybe things will feel a little more even Vanderbilt and Missouri will both be unbeaten this weekend because they will not play a football game COVID protocols testing and tracing and quarantining for Vanderbilt has ruled that game to be postponed right now it's scheduled for December 12th at the end of the year Uh, listen I have a theory on this and we're in Nashville, Aaron, where the Tennessee Titans and the NFL with very strict procedures, protocols, daily testing, you know, ramped up contact tracing with like electronic bracelets and strictly collectively bargained, legally medical, you know, everything. And they have still it's still been a shit show here in Tennessee for the NFL and the Titans to handle it all. There is there there is no chance that college football programs without any transparency without any accountability at all, are doing all the right things. If the Titans in the NFL can't get their their house in order with all this stuff sort of legally laid out, there is no way that college football programs aren't aren't breaking the rules somewhere along the way. And Vanderbilt, to me, my opinion is, is that Vanderbilt is probably the most buttoned up, medically conservative, sound, not willing to break rules school in the SEC. And they are now below the threshold from what I am told and that they cannot, they will not have enough players to play. And so... If, if you're asking me to guess, it's that Vanderbilt has the strictest protocols, and it's why Vanderbilt is the first team to have to cancel a game. That will be my guess. I don't disagree with that. It's I mean, Vanderbilt has a reputation. A lot of the things that came out, studies, um, instructions on how to create your own masks, like a lot of those things came from Vanderbilt. They were the national, like, you know, end-all, be-all, here's what we do, Um and it's a it's a source of information. You You're not talking about the explain. football program. You're talking no, about the, I'm t- the yeah, medical. I'm school. talking about t- sorry. Yeah, right. I'm talking yeah. about Vanderbilt Medical. So yeah, yeah. I mean, you yes, their standards for health and safety are very high. And here's the thing: athletic departments, and I'm no stranger to this. Is this 
budgets are hard in athletic departments anyway. This is expensive. Like to do what they need to do is expensive. And guess what? Most athletic departments are not making what they were supposed to make this year or even close. So this is a really expensive undertaking to be able to, you know, do like what you're saying, to do what the Titans are doing, especially when, you know, revenue is not where it needs to be. Yeah. And and it sucks because Connor Bazelak, who was brilliant against LSU, looks like the guy for Missouri for the next 35 games, kind of like Ken Seals for Vanderbilt. I was excited to watch those two quarterbacks. Yeah play and Basilak, I think I can't wait to hear what scouts have to say about this kid because he's you know he's prototypical guy like 6'3 225 you know big muscular guy he probably has like Bama bangs or whatever so um, which is probably totally unfair to judge him that way you know speaking of Bama and you'll t- we'll, we're going to talk with Chris Lowe about this I-, I know that I'm cynical when I say that I think college football is like just inherently corrupt I know that's maybe cynical but like what about college football has taught you that it's not like, what is it that you know about college football that tells you that everyone acts perfectly behind closed doors? We know that recruiting is dirty. We know that, you know, how you handle campus police is dirty. We know, like, all, all this stuff is dirty behind closed doors in college football. I know, I'm not trying to be overly cynical, but, like, let's live in reality here, right? You are being a little cynical, but I know, right. what, you're, I know what you're saying. Well, big, that's, that's, football is big business, and there is oftentimes corruption in big business. I will say that. So, and this is no exception. It's a... It is has an astronomically high ceiling on revenue, and for that reason, people get greedy when there's money involved. When you have a multi-billion-dollar industry and a free labor force, corruption is inherent. It is so dark. It is part of the business. <laughs> so dark. Woo pig suey. Uh, <laughs> real quickly here, uh, last note as you know, I, I think Chris Chris Lowe is going to talk about this. I think Texas A and M could be dangerous. Keep an eye on them. Auburn goes to South Carolina, and Auburn, you could argue, could be 0-3. I know they beat Kentucky pretty easily, but Kentucky kind of outplayed them, got some really bad calls. Arkansas probably should have won the game against Auburn because of the terrible officiating at the end of the game. It was clearly a backwards pass, and Arkansas clearly recovered it. I'm not saying that the officials had to overturn that or they could overturn that. Maybe they implemented the, the review in the right way. But I'm sorry, officials, you were terrible in the Florida A&M game. You missed a chop block in the Tennessee game. You've been bad all season long, and you were terrible at the end of the game. When Bo Nix turns around and spikes the football backwards, you cannot rule it a forward pass. You have to get that call right. That was bad. There's really no excuse for it, and you're right. It's, it, it's again, it's I have a hard time absolutely eating officials alive because we see everything in, you know, one-fourth the speed. But that wasn't something that really came down to slow-mo or error of the human eye. I think it was just not the right, not the correct call. I know it happens fast. It does. To, to your point, the game happens fast. But you have to know, like, you, every single throw, officials are going, all right, was his arm going forward or backward? Like, that's a thing that's very natural for mm-hmm. officials. And he very clearly turns around and throws it backwards. Like, I just, it's so obvious. I, I don't know. And they, I think the problem is that some of these calls have been – the stakes were very high on some of these bad calls this season. Yeah. And there's like game. Yeah. They, they had major impacts. Yeah. I get your point. And, and look, I'm okay with a little rust on officials, right? Like it's part of the game during 2020. Everything's got an asterisk. So officials have asterisks too. I get that, you know, and Sam Pittman should be two and one and Auburn should be one and two. And so point is, is they've gotten fairly lucky with the officials so far. And the officials have been bad for almost everybody across the board. I just And if Auburn goes down to South Carolina and plays poorly this week, I don't know what to make of Will Muschamp at South Carolina, but the, the fans in Auburn turned quickly 
on people. <laughs> it does not happen slowly. They, no. they they move quickly against the gust bus. You're not wrong. I don't, yeah, I, don't, I, don't. I like it when you say I'm not wrong. I know because that's my very passive way of kind of agreeing with you. <laughs> right. And I think I already had one earlier. You're not, you're not allowed to say you're right, Braden. No, you I did. I did say you. Wrong. I said I agree with you earlier, and you know my rule. So yeah, that's true. You're only allowed one at a time. Uh, all right. So that, that's sort of our quick glance at what's going on around the league. We got a big show planned. Trey Crowder, of course, the liberal redneck, but we don't talk politics. So just sit back and enjoy that. I think you're going to love it. Tennessee fans, a lot of great stories. Uh, a drunk dialing story to one of the coaches. You're going to want to hear that. It's it's really funny. He's a hilarious dude. Uh, and then Chris Logan to join us from ESPN, as you said, could not be more different. Could not be. <laughs> but I think both very interesting and, and very worth your time. So we do appreciate that. Rate, review, and subscribe. So without further ado, let's get to our first guest, Chris Lowe from ESPN. Chris, uh, first of all, thanks for joining us, man. Good to have you on the show. And you, you wrote a fascinating piece sort of taking fans behind the scenes at the University of Alabama and how they're handling the coronavirus from a protocol standpoint and, and all that good stuff. Can you kind of tell the fans and explain to college football fans out there what, what that process is like for a journalist to, A, get the assignment, come up with the idea, and then execute that idea to actually be inside the walls of a program like Nick Saban's to learn about what they're doing? Well, the idea, honestly, was sort of born out of conversations we had at ESPN on, um, on, on trying to take fans behind the curtain of what it was like to prepare a team during the whole COVID era. You know, we, we'd had a bunch of conversations. We talked to coaches and ADs around the country, and, and, and I said, you know, well, maybe I can get in at Alabama, who is what's obviously one of the premier programs in the country, just based on relationships I'd had over the years with guys like Nick Saban and Jeff Allen, their trainer. You know, I've known those guys for a long time and, you know, they agreed to it. And a lot of that is just gets back to like most everything else in life relationships, you know, and having known Nick going back to when he was LSU and hard to believe he's been at Bama as long as he's been now. I think they sort of wanted to get it out too, what they were doing, the precautions they were taking, the steps they were taking, none of it's foolproof. I mean, they, they made it very, you know, very clear that it's not like they got it all figured out, but just to sort of go in behind the scenes and from the training staff to the things they're doing on the practice field to the way they're trying to sanitize everything, the way they're doing all the, you know, meals. I mean, I can remember going to Bama in the past and they'd have these big buffet lines at, at lunch and dinner where the players are going through and, you know, <laughs> piling stuff on their plate. Well, they're, they're doing basically takeout box lunches now. You have to come in and different assigned times to get your lunch and but just to sort of show what you know how it's different you know for those of us who cover college football and had the chance to go in behind the scenes at different schools and I have you know from Bama to Florida State to, to Penn State to Tennessee uh, you know it looked markedly different and uh, it was it was pretty eye-opening to see how much different it was and everything they're doing and the, the thing that um, sort of jumped out to me is that at a place like Alabama and you could say this at LSU and Ohio State and Texas, the, the, the Blue Bloods, most of the Power Five is they've got the resources to do these things, you know, to test kids every day, to bring in more people, to, to sanitize the building every day, and all the things they're doing differently in the cafeteria. I mean, the, even BAM, I think Greg Burns said they were going to have a, what, a $75 million revenue shortfall this year. But even with that, they've got the resources and the cash 
to do these things and not everybody does. Chris, I, I think going back to your, you know, your relationship with, with Nick Saban, I mean, trust is at the root of, of everything. I mean, not only in sports, but just life. And I, I think that trust has a, a lot to do with why all of those players at Alabama felt comfortable playing for coach Saban. They knew that, you know, the coaches and the staff was going to be doing what they needed to do to keep them safe. And you brought up trust between you and Nick Saban. Um, and you can tell when you did that video with him, when you were on campus for this, how at ease he was. What have you done to kind of build up that trust with someone who tends to like to keep things pretty private? How do you groom that out over, over the course of a whole career? First of all, just do it for a long time. You know, I've been <laughs> doing it for a while. I'm old and <laughs> know a lot of these guys going back, as I said, different stops in their, in their career. And for most of my career, I covered just the SEC. I'm just a, you know, a, a track record of being around these guys and doing stories and talking to them. You know, it's harder now because everything's sort of, uh, we all, interviews are done in groups. You know, we don't have the one-on-one -on -one time with coaches. I mean, when I first started in this business, I got, gosh, I can remember the SEC media days back in the early 90s when Steve Spurrier would quit talking or, or finish his sort of time there on the podium and you go hang out with him down at the bottom for 15, 20 minutes and talk to him. You know, those days are long gone. Everything's sort of structured. And, and again, I think, think having covered college ball for a long time and having prior relationships with these guys helps. You know, I feel sad for the people that are breaking the business now because it's harder to establish those relationships. If you're a 25 or 27 or 28-year-old that's breaking the business now, it's hard to get to know the Nick Sabans, the, the Jimbo Fishers, the the Ryan Days, you know, Tom Herman's, Lincoln Riley's, because you don't get that access. Now, I'm also very fortunate, very blessed that I work, you know, for a big national company, ESPN. I mean, they're going to let – Alabama's going to be a lot more willing to let ESPN or, or HBO in behind the scenes than they are, you know, someone who's a local journalist or has a blog or, or even – you know, a, a newspaper, a regional newspaper in the South. So that I've got that going for me too, because they want their brand out there. You know, most things coaches and ADs agree to now in this day and age, that's sort of behind the scenes. They always feel like, well, if they say yes, and I've asked to do things where, where not only BAM, but other schools have said no, but when they say yes, they always feel like it can help them in recruiting. They can help get their brand out there. And I think that was just sort of the case with this, that, moms and dads and kids watching or reading would say, you know what, they're doing this, this, and this, and they're taking this step and that step. And look at the trust between Nick Saban and his trainer, Jeff Allen, who, by the way, has been with him every step of the way since he got to Alabama. You know, maybe that is a good place for me to go or for me to send my kid. I want to get, obviously, your thoughts on the upcoming week of football. But real, real quickly, are you, are you surprised, since you've seen all the different protocols and it does feel like there's just sort of no rhyme or reason to why it's happened, you know, what people are doing from an execution standpoint, um, there's no coherence, at least across conferences or, or leagues. Are you surprised that it took this long for an SEC game with Vanderbilt and Missouri getting postponed, uh, just in your opinion? No, because I think the SEC, like a lot of the Power Five schools, not all of them, are better able to create a bubble within their programs than, than smaller schools or, or mid-sized schools. Because so many of these kids are, are going, are taking classes all online. And so you're not out and about the student body as much. And, you know, if you're at a place like Alabama or LSU or Florida or Ohio State, and I know Ohio State and Michigan, those schools haven't started playing yet. Why are most of those kids on campus? They're on campus to play football and to win a championship and to try to have a chance to go play pro ball. So I think they're better at policing each other. 
And this is something that Saban talked about. He says, you know, our kids have sort of policed each other. And they said, listen, if you're about going to parties and hanging out at, at community swimming pools and putting yourself in situations, you know, in the bar scene, then this is not the place for you because that's where you're going to get the virus in, in those large gatherings. So, no, because I think it's at places like at Ohio State or Bama or Texas or Oklahoma, LSU, Florida. I mean, it's, it's so football-centric that these kids are going to be more willing to do what they need to do to try to help prevent the spread of it. Now, nothing, as I said earlier, nothing's foolproof. We saw what happened with Vanderbilt and other schools have battled it. I mean, Missouri's battled it. Even Bama. You know, when I was there in July, when they brought all those kids back, they had a, a pretty big yeah. rash of, of, of positives. But once they got them back and they're able to sort of educate them a little bit better, and, and the testing part of it, I think, is a huge component that they're testing these kids every day yeah. at Alabama. And, but um, but and, and there, you know what? This won't be the last one though. This this Missouri Vanderbilt. There'll, there'll be another one, maybe a couple more because it's just it's inevitable that in this climate that there's going to be those kind of things. All right, let's talk a little football here for you, with you for a few minutes. Um, Alabama, Georgia, are you more concerned about Georgia's offense and its upside or more concerned with Alabama's defense and the big chunk plays they've given up so far to date? <sighs> Probably Georgia's offense because I do think that Alabama is good enough on offense that they're going to score against everybody. I just that They're just so explosive. They've got so many weapons. You know, Mac Jones might be the most underrated player in the country. Everybody talks about Tua. Tua was great and saw the field. He can spread the ball around. But, you know, when I was there and watched him practice and, and talking to the players, I mean, Mac Jones is really talented and knows that offense inside and out. Sarkeesian is so good with his quarterbacks and playing to their strengths. I don't think they're going to put up 40-plus points on Georgia. But I, also, I still think that Alabama is good enough and talented enough on defense and will make adjustments. I mean, Saban, this is not – Saban's first rodeo, and, and Georgia's still, I don't want to say pedestrian, but they're still sort of what they are offensively. And I don't know that even though Alabama gave up nine miles and nine million points to Lane Kiffin and Ole Miss last week, that they're going to do that again this week. So I, I, I would say that that would be my first answer. Now, you, you asked me again on Sunday, once we see how this game <laughs> plays out, you know, I may think differently. But you know what? Alabama's still, they're not what they were in 09 and 010 and 11 on defense, but they still recruited way too well. Yeah to give up the kind of points and yards they did to Ole Miss last Saturday. So after this game, you'll have one team left in the SEC unbeaten. Uh, I still think everyone's going to lose. I think you add a loss to everybody's <laughs> record because of 2020, whatever, <laughs> you know. Florida loses a game. A&M's gotten blown out already. You know, Tennessee has lost. Auburn, we're not really sure. Maybe should have lost twice. I'm not sure. If I'm Jimbo Fisher, if I'm Dan Mullen, Jeremy Pruitt, these guys with one loss, Gus Malzahn, I'm still very much in belief that we can get back in the race because we all have all these games in front of us that are that are going to be – now, are they good enough? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I think there's a good chance we have a two-loss champion or a one-loss champion. I, I just don't see perfection from anybody in the SEC this year. Yeah, I'd be very surprised if at least one of the participants – in the SEC championship game didn't have at least two losses. I think it's I think it's just sort of where we are with the 10-game league schedule. We've never gone down this road before. And, you know, talking to Jimbo and Nick and some of the guys before the season, they all sort of predicted this, that to play 10 games against SEC foes and in a season when you've had so little practice time together on the field, you didn't have spring practice, there are going to be those games that you're like, what? what? Did that really just happen? There's going to be more of those. I'll tell you the team to watch. Watch Texas A&M. If they get past – so and, – and Mississippi State's still dangerous. I mean, and that, I know they've been sort of schizophrenic the way they – you know, they just blew out LSU in the last two weeks. They looked awful. 
but they're still going to have games, and it's just Mike Leach. I mean, he's still going to have games where he's going to score 40-plus points and throw for 500 yards. They're going to get another team or two like that. But if A&M gets by this one, they've already played Alabama. They're the team that maybe we and, – and I'm probably guilty of this as well – that we wrote off because of how just average to below average they looked against Vanderbilt and then sort of Alabama racing past them. They're the team the rest of the way that I think will get better and they've got the talent that they may be the team we're writing off that has a chance to be a factor in that race. Chris, what do you, when you saw, so A&M, and I agree with you, I do think that they're more dangerous, especially than they looked in week one against Vanderbilt. It's kind of you know, a testament to the SEC that you really just never know. But there was a lot of emotion in the game on Saturday with the, especially, you know, A&M, lots of penalties, um, fighting. <laughs> I told Braden, I'm like, they're grouchy for play, because I guess because they're playing the 11 o'clock game, they had to get up at 4 a.m. But it, does that show, are you worried about the maturity with that many penalties, that much, you know, the inability to kind of regulate yourself? And, and what does that mean for them? You know what? That's a good question because as I've looked around the league so far, and really around college football, with the heightened anxieties and just what everybody, not just football players, but we've all gone through over the last five or six months, I think emotions are boiling over across the board. You've seen a lot of bad penalties. The kid at Georgia squirted the water bottle on the Tennessee player. We've seen some, uh, I go back to that first game against South Carolina, Tennessee. There were some penalties on the sideline, late hits. And you know, you've seen that across the board in a lot of games where, you know, I think you, you attribute it to maybe emotions boiling over a little bit. Teams haven't been on the practice field a lot. You know, you, you had all these Zoom meetings. And I wonder if there was some overkill on some of those with kids. It just, you know, you just get tired of that. You want to get out and do it. And yeah. when you get a chance finally to get in games and get on the practice field, maybe you're not quite as disciplined as you need to be. But, no, I think A&M and all of them, all the schools, I think it's something they need to sort of work out of their system because this is a long season. It's going back to 10 games in the league. And, you know, if, if you're not disciplined and you can't channel these things in the right way, you know, then you're going to have those things happen. LSU, Florida this weekend. So I guess it's a two-part question. One is where is the bottom for LSU? How bad could it get this year? And, and then on the other side of that, that equation is Dan Mullen, who's asking for, you know, 90,000 people in the stands. I, I still think Florida might've been the better team against A&M. I still think Florida can win the SEC. Uh, what do you make of LSU at Florida? Well, if LSU loses this game, I think that there's an opportunity for the bottom to really fall out. And, you know, I knew they weren't going to be close to what they were last year. You just can't lose that many good players via opt-out to the NFL. You know, you lose both your coordinators. There's so much new. And but they've still recruited well. I mean, it's not like that they haven't recruited well over the last few years. But I, uh, I, thought, that they would, I thought they had a chance to be a, you know, a six- or seven-win team this year. And at this point, I don't know if they can get to six wins when you look at the rest of their schedule, certainly if they lose again this year. I tell you what, I talked to some people on Missouri's and around that program, and they told me that LSU, they were very surprised at how average LSU was in spots and just how they weren't very, to be frank, just weren't very good in spots. And you've sort of seen that play out to this point, the way Missouri exploited them. But, again, I, I think you got to give some, some credit to Leach. Leach is going to do that to some teams. He's going to have some games where – they just look like they can't line up. And in some games where they throw again for, for nine miles and score a lot of points. But I think another loss for LSU this, this week, then I, have, I think there's a chance that this team doesn't finish over 500. And 
I don't know. You guys probably know. I don't know the last time a national champion. And this is a different year with a pandemic and playing sure. all league games. But I, I can't think of the last time a national champion has come into the next year and hasn't finished better than 500. You'd have to be extremely organized and execute very well to keep all of Florida's offensive weapons in check. So I think that's going to present a problem for LSU. But also, all I could think about this weekend was Derek Stingley and how much pressure everybody put on him. You know he's probably sitting back before this past weekend, like, maybe we have more holes than I can fix by myself. <laughs> I, I was just thinking about him watching um, all those tweets coming in and everything on, on the networks of, like, I don't know if I can fix this by myself, guys. Well, I remember, you know, he didn't play the first week. You know, right. He was, uh, he was out. So, you know, I don't know how fully healthy, you know, he was. You know, he was coming back from, a, from an illness. But, uh, no, I mean, he's a great player and he's going to make a lot of money. But LSU's problems are more up front, getting to the passer. You know, and, and yeah. teams have really carved them apart with some of the underneath routes, you know, where they just haven't been very good. Their linebackers and safeties are covering people and have busted a lot of assignments. You know, again, it's a new new coordinator. Napoli's been around a long time, but his system's a little bit different. And uh, they just – Ogeron said it. You know, that was embarrassing the way they looked on defense last week. And they didn't tackle well. They were out of position. You know, all the things that cost you. And I'll say this, you know, this is not the – coming off that kind of performance defensively, you know, as bad as Florida's looked on defense. Now, they, they can light you up on offense. You know, so LSU better get better, get better in a hurry. Uh, or it's going to be some of the same old, same old against Florida, you know, with, with yeah. Trash throwing the football the way he does. And he's got guys all around him that can make plays. It's going to be a tall order for LSU against this, this Florida offense. All right, we'll let you go after this one, Chris. Real quickly, Tennessee, I know it wasn't what fans wanted in the second half against Georgia. I still think all of their actual goals and aspirations for 2020 are still very much attainable. So uh, uh, your opinion on the trajectory of Tennessee football, I, I don't think the loss to Georgia really takes away from what they should accomplish in 2020, which is acquire talent, get better, and beat all the teams you're supposed to. You know, I thought coming into the season, if Tennessee could go 6-4 and four and have a winning record, that'd be a good season. Uh, in this year with, with, with a 10, again, playing all league games. The Kentucky game's critical. I think Kentucky, if you ask me all the teams in the league right now that's better than what their record shows, Kentucky would be at the top of my list. Mark Stoops has done a terrific job of improving both lines of scrimmage. Now, they still aren't dynamic at the quarterback position. Uh, they haven't thrown them as well as they need to. Uh, so they got to play better there. They got to play better around the quarterbacks too. But they are plenty good enough up front on both sides of the of the line of scrimmage to come in and Knoxville and beat Tennessee. So this is a critical game for the balls because I think if they lose this one and they've had Kentucky's number, I think they've won like, I forget what the number is, like 23 of the last 20, something ridiculous over Kentucky. But even in those years, those rare years when Kentucky maybe was a little bit better, Tennessee's always find, has found a way to beat them. But if Tennessee doesn't win this game, then I think they're going to have a hard time having a winning record this year in the league. But, um, you know, Tennessee, here's the big disappointment with Tennessee. Is it, and again, maybe it's the, and I don't want to make excuses for them, but maybe it's the limited practice time, but they just got to play cleaner football. They, they can't be sloppy and, and have pre-snap penalties. I mean, if the offensive line's as good as everybody thinks it is, and I think they're awfully good, you can't have that many false starts. You got to play better. You got to play to your strength. And Tennessee's strength is clearly up front offensively, you know, but you got to protect better. Your backs have got to pick up the blitzes. You know, Garantano can't hold on to the football. I mean, there's, everybody wants to beat up on the quarterback, and, and Garantano has been a low-hanging fruit for a lot of Tennessee fans, but they got to play much more complete, much cleaner, much smarter football. Chris, always a pleasure, man. We appreciate it, buddy. Thanks, Thanks for Chris. having me. 
want to say special thanks to Chris Lowe from ESPN for giving us a few minutes of his time, taking a look at how he was embedded with Nick Saban and what the protocols are like. One of the most terrifying lines in his story on ESPN, I recommend everyone go read it, is Alabama's changed everything off of the field so that they don't have to change anything on the field. I'm going, great. <laughs> Super. That's great for everybody else. They're going to be exactly the same on the field. And you asked about it. People are clearly different on the field from an anxiety standpoint, officiating, coaching, and Alabama's the one that's like going to be the same. That's terrifying. It is. But what's not terrifying is Chris Lowe. He has a very calming presence. I feel calm now. Okay. I I agree. Chris is a very nice guy. Uh, And some interesting thoughts on the Tennessee-Kentucky game. He also believes Jimbo Fisher and and Texas A&M could be a dangerous team to watch. They've already got the Bama game out of the way, and they've beaten Florida. So, you know, they don't – I don't believe they face Georgia. So, they've got winnable games the rest of the way. LSU doesn't look as bad on their schedule as as it does. They can get past Mississippi State this week. They've got some some chances to to, do some really – Really good stuff. So uh, always love talking with Chris, one of the best in the business, been around this uh, uh, industry in college football and the SEC for a very, very long time. Let's change gears, Aaron. Let's, <laughs> I mean, here we go. Let's totally change gears because Chris Lowe gives you one thing. Our next guest, Trey Crowder, gives you a very different thing. So this is going to be a little fun. We're going to laugh. We're going to cry. We're going to talk about drunk dialing Tennessee coaches. How about that? Sound good? I truly cannot wait. And if if... <laughs> laughter is happening if it doesn't i'm judging yeah that's fair put the judgy pants on so again without further ado thanks to chris lowe our next guest comedian and tennessee fan (laughs) trey crowder trey first of all appreciate you giving us a few minutes of your time man and you are from i want to kind of take people through your sports fandom People know a lot about you as the comedian and as an activist now, but let's let's introduce Trey Crowder, the sports fan, to people. Uh, you're from a you're from a small town uh, near the Kentucky border in Tennessee. I, I would ask you, how did you end up falling in love with sports? But you were raised in the South, so that might be a stupid question. All right. Well, there's a part of this we're gonna get into that I'm not even sure if you're aware of, but uh, we'll get to it in just a second. Yeah, the little town's called Salina. It's in Clay County, up on the Kentucky border. So I have a even more fervent than usual hatred for the Kentucky Wildcats for Big Blue, you know, because I grew up on the Kentucky line and there were a lot of people there that were like, it, it was an area divided where basketball was concerned, you know, like I went to school with a lot of people who weren't Tennessee fans. Tennessee was never relevant in college basketball back then anyway, which made it worse. So I went, went to school with a lot of like big time Kentucky fans. So I really hated them. All my <laughs> friends were really into, uh, Tennessee football, obviously, from very early age, because I was a kid when Peyton Manning was there. And so, I mean, you know, I mean, he was larger than life. He was, I mean, literally, I remember there, like USA Today did a thing where every week they put out a different small portion of this like eight by 10 foot mural of Peyton Manning. You could like put on your, you know, garage door or whatever you wanted to. <laughs> it was that big. And like my fifth grade teacher had that on the, on the wall of, uh, you know, the classroom or whatever. So it was a huge thing and we were all super into it. Uh, so the Vols has never been a question as far as fandom goes. And then I always loved football. And then here's what I was referencing earlier. The Titans came in what? 90 or the Oilers to begin with 97. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. Memphis in 97 and yeah, then right. Nashville in, in 98, 99. So I was 11, 12 years old and I was already a football fan at that time. Uh, and I had a older first cousin, my mom's nephew, 
who was like sort of like a big brother to me when I was a kid. He's like five years older than me, and I looked up to him a lot and everything. And my first cousin, he was a uh, a juvenile delinquent and a soon-to-be felon. So my point is, he was a huge Oakland Raiders fan. That uh, adds up. Yeah, I know, I know. And because I looked up to him so much, I was a Raiders fan too, like as a kid. And then the Titans came, and I got really into the Titans just like everybody else did once they became the Titans. Like a lot of people in Tennessee, I think, I didn't care too much, the, the Oilers years. Then the first year they were the Titans, they went to the Super Bowl. I love Stephen Aaron, I love Eddie George. So I got into the Titans, but I never quit rooting for the Raiders, unfortunately, because that's been hell on earth ever since. But I know a lot of people don't like it when you got like sort of two teams, but you know, <laughs> I never abandoned the Raiders, but obviously I root for all things Tennessee because like in the NBA, I'm a Grizzlies fan. I'm a Preds fan, you know, yeah. pretty much anything Tennessee related, I'm going to cheer for. Was there ever a moment where you wanted to maybe pursue the felon career path? Like, did you ever have that conversation? Uh, surprisingly, no. Uh, it's very much, very, very much in my blood uh, to, to do. I got just trash blood. So um, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of felonious activity in my family tree. But I was always the, uh, I was always kind of like the golden boy, you know, like the, the good one who was going to like get out and get away from all that or whatever. And I never really questioned it. So I think I want to know, Trey, did, did your, did your mom know she was raising an oxymoron growing up or do you think it just became more, you know, no, 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 no. In my family, oxymorons were the pill head dumbasses that ran. <laughs> my, my, my mom and my aforementioned cousin BJ, uh, I like to joke about it, but it's true too. It's funny and true. Um, <laughs> Yeah, to answer your question seriously, I definitely think my parents, I was mostly raised by my dad, but my mom, you know, my mom was around. I've repaired my relationship with my mom at this point for, and it was for oxy reasons that she wasn't around as much, but I think both of them knew. I think everybody in the family was aware that, you know, they were raising some kind of dumbass. No, I, no, they just knew that I wasn't, that I was at the very least like a weird kid or different different from the other kids that I went to school with for sure but my dad was really into weird stuff he was always okay with that like my dad was like showing me David Lynch movies when I was 10 years old and stuff like that <laughs> like my dad loved loved he passed away in 2013 but my dad who was from there born and raised like I was the third generation to graduate from that high school my family had been there forever multiple generations my dad had been there his whole life and he was always like you know reveled in a kind of outcast status himself like he loved David Bowie and foreign films and shit like that. He was still very like redneck old boy type guy, but I guess I say that I'll, I'll say all that just to say like, yeah, he was aware of it, but he was also on board with it. You know, now my grandpa probably not so much, but my dad was cool. <laughs> well, I I was doing a little bit of research, Trey, and I was really excited that you were coming on the show with us, and I I've made a discovery in my research that I think might interest you. There is now a kit where you can convert your Prius into a pickup truck. It's called That's a truck. And I thought that might be something that interests you. You may have to paint the flames on the side yourself and take off the muffler, but I think it could get you going in the right direction. Man, you must have done some serious research if you found what I think you're referring to, unless I said it at some other point that I've forgotten about. The, 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 the my other truck is a Prius line. Yeah. Yeah. 
that goes that goes way back, man. That, I was doing that line on stage like forever ago. That is wonderful that that has happened. On that note, similarly, I was very pretty pretty disappointed in the Tesla truck when it came out. Not, I agree. I, I think I'm pretty disappointed in just the entire Tesla thing, actually. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't. But let's I'll, not get started on I, that. I don't know what that was. Uh, <laughs> way too Blade, and I love Blade Runner, but I don't like. <laughs> I don't want to mix in the Blade Runner stuff with the pickup truck stuff, you know? I'm yeah. not for that. I feel that, you on that. that that's fair. Uh, how did you feel in the third quarter of the Tennessee-Georgia game? <laughs> <laughs> I felt pretty good, you know? I, I was feeling really good in the first half, for sure. I'd, uh, I, I, a fan at one of my shows, and I, I feel so bad that I can't even remember exactly where it was at. Not somewhere you would think, not in the South, like somewhere in Portland or somewhere. Some, a fan brought me this like ridiculous orange and white checkerboard cowboy hat that like curled up on the sides or whatever. It's absurd. <laughs> and so I love it. You know, so I was sitting there on the couch with that on and every time it was a sack or something, I was like finger guns at the TV, <laughs> holstering them and stuff, just doing whatever I could to make my wife cringe as hard as possible. But I was like really into it, obviously. So it was going well. And then, yeah, the second half, the, it just went completely off the rails. And, of course, as a Vols fan, I'm used to that. Uh, but, I don't know, it seemed to happen faster and more emphatically than usual this past <laughs> week. <laughs> like, it really – like, it really – it was like they flipped a switch once, and then after that, it was like a whole different ball game. But, like I said, I am used to – I'm used to the pain. I'm, I'm one with despair at this point. So, I got – you know, I, I got over it. Like, I – I don't know about you. I've very much had a thing when I was I've had, I've struggled a lot as a grown man. I'm married. I have two young sons now. I've got a career. Like I'm, you know, I'm an adult, yeah. right? And I've been an adult for a long time now. And I've really had to work on like not allowing the outcomes of these like, you know, games, gladiator activities or whatever, especially ones played by children college athletics to just completely ruin my whole week or you know whatever like yeah I, and I've had to really fight against that and it still does happen sometimes and I, I feel shame for it now but I've had to work really hard to just I still love sports and I still get really into it but not allow it to impact me so heavily on a personal level because I mean it used to very much yeah I think maturity is the word that comes to mind when I think about that you said you're used to it those of us who are uh, alumni of the school are used to it Um, it's happened because of time Um, it's it's not nature it's definitely nurture over the last decade and I think what's interesting is that I, I feel like the buy-in on Jeremy Pruitt, it's almost irrelevant who he is. It's, it's because Uncle Phil did it. And, and I'm just curious, do, do you think people are even more disappointed? And, and you're obviously not one of them because, again, you, there's some maturity happening here. But are, are people going to be, are Tennessee fans even more distraught over what happens if Jeremy Pruitt doesn't work out because it's Philip Fulmer? Because Philip Fulmer is daddy and daddy made the decisions? Man, I, okay, I don't know. That's a hard question because part of me feels like part of me feels like Tennessee fans are going to be super distraught if it doesn't work out just because it's just one right after another. You know what I mean? It's like so many shots to the face and balls and everywhere else <laughs> as a Tennessee <laughs> fan with our coaching recent coaching history. And it's just praying for one of them to finally work out. You know, it's like straws on a camel's back effect is what I'm saying. Like, I feel like people are going to be pretty upset regardless just because of the cumulative effect of years of disgrace 
But um, I definitely think – I remember <laughs> – I remember during the last coaching search before they got Pruitt, but right after Uncle Phil came in and took over and he had a, like, introductory press conference, I was actually at Zionese in Nashville that weekend. So I was back in Tennessee and I was listening to sports radio. It wasn't, it wasn't your show. I don't remember whose it was now, but they had a caller. They had multiple callers on <laughs> and this guy, this old boy called in. And I swear to God, I've never heard a more like pitiful, defeated sounding grown man in my <laughs> life. Like he called in and was like on the verge of tears the whole time. And basically was just saying like, it's just nice to hear Phil's voice, man. Like, you know, like after, <laughs> after all we've been through, I'm just like, I just, uh, you know, <laughs> like just moved to tears at just the presence of something that reminds them of normalcy or good times again. And ever, so, I mean, yeah, we've certainly been through a lot. Yeah, Pruitt doesn't work out. It's it's going to be rough. And I, I'm, I want to say, oh, I don't know how it could get much worse, but I'm not going to say that. Yeah, don't. No, no, it's not, not, not only is it Tennessee football, but it's Tennessee football in 2020. So let's not, you know, yeah. San Andreas fault line is going to be like, hold my beer pretty soon. So yeah. just be careful. For the record, though, I'm still like, I'm okay with Pruitt, you know, okay. like, as a man personally. I yeah, mean, it's one loss. It's one loss. Right, exactly. They, yeah. here, okay. I, <laughs> I was talking earlier about having to grow up and do and be um, nah, sure about things. I don't even know if I should say what I'm about to say, but I'm going to anyway. Do it. Uh, forget it. I, last, speaking of immaturity, last fall at the beginning of the season, you know, when we lost to Georgia State and it was BYU right, right <laughs> after that. Worst, worst opening to a season ever. I know. No, I don't really know, but I know a very little bit uh, T. Martin, right? Because he's like he like likes my videos and stuff, and we've I, I got his number. We'll text each other every now and then or whatever, but never about anything like related to his job. Just always about just whatever, random stuff. But when that happened, I had been drinking, watching the game, and I was a little drunk and upset, and I start basically like drunk dialing fucking T. Martin, which definitely lost to BYU. Yeah, pretty much. Yes, yes. And, uh, and he didn't. <laughs> and now, luckily, luckily, I had enough sense to say, not, not that it wouldn't matter, but I opened with something like, look, man, I said drunk. I wasn't calling him. I was texting him all this okay. stuff. And I opened up with it like, look, man, you ain't got to respond to none of this. I totally understand why you wouldn't. But anyway, here we go. And then <laughs> it's like, like multiple paragraphs of just, uh, you know, drunken teary-eyed uh, tirade basically and the the thrust of it was Pruitt ain't the one we messed it up again you should have got the job I knew it the whole time I was saying the whole time you should have got the job they need to just give you the job right now because I don't know what this guy's doing it just and, and you talk about, I woke up the next day and I was like Boy, that was it'd been a long time since I'd had one of those where I woke up the next morning and was like, What did I, you know, say to that so person the, last night? Because I've been married so for so long, you know. Yeah, yeah. I didn't expect it to be T. Martin, uh, that would make, <laughs> make, me, make me feel that way. Uh, but anyway, because he's a good dude, he kind of just ignored that ever happened, which I really appreciate. Uh, because I have talked to him since, and that's never come up. And again, I'm so glad that he paid me that courtesy of just acting like that never happened. But, but my point is I was, I was very low on Jeremy Pruitt. <laughs> but he kind of won me. It, I, I never expected the worst beginning to a season that I can ever remember as a Tennessee fan 
turning into one of the better, you know, second halves of a season that I can ever remember. Like they closed really strong last year. And especially the comparison to where I was at the beginning of the year, how I felt at the end of the year, I was like, I had optimism again, you know, that, that scourge of Vols fans. Yep. Yep. Um, and then basically all, this year's such a weird year. Like you said, it's 2020 pandemic. They basically haven't, they weren't even able to practice for so long. Everything's so weird and crazy. Yeah. I was already yeah. kind of giving them a bit of a pass anyway, depending on, depending on, if they look just pitiful, that that's different. But I was like, you know, who knows, man, with a year like this, what's going to happen? Then they came out and won the first two games. They won convincingly in Missouri. I was feeling good about it. They started out great Saturday. So I'm not like – I'm not doom and gloom right now, personally. Like, I still feel okay about it. Um, I, I, I think all the goals are, are still there for them, actually. Like, yeah. if you lose to Bama, Georgia, and Florida, and you finish 7-3, and three, I think that's pretty – damn good in 2020 so uh, although it does feel like the maturity thing you're working on is is like the last 12 months kind of thing um so that that's good that that's yeah. that's a part of the repertoire now Let, well, let's, no, you can have relapses you know it's the ongoing thing i'm working on but every now and then you fall off the wagon you know it happens. hi my name is Braden, and i'm a tennessee fan yeah it looks like you've come quite a ways in the last couple of years trey because there's a you have a tweet from about this time 2018 that said um, in the volunteer state, hope is a lie and only darkness is real. <laughs> yeah, well, you can probably find a lot of those. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know, from, I know. Not for just for me, but yeah, no, you've really dug in deep. Uh, which that's good. I respect that. But yeah, no, there's been a lot of yeah, a lot of naysaying from me. <laughs> Uh, this raises an interesting question because I do want to talk comedy and, and some of the projects you guys are working on, which I think are really amazing, but it does, you know, Aaron digging into old tweets is, is fascinating to me, not just because it's good preparation for a podcast, but I do think there's this phenomenon on like it, it, your, your worst drunken moment on a Saturday night. If you happen to throw something out on social media that like five years later, it could be used against you by somebody in some forum in some way, shape or form. You and, and myself and Aaron are all in sort of the content business. We create content. And so some of that's going to be really awesome. Some of that's going to be bad. Some of it's going to be questionable. What, what do you feel about people going back and like, I, I just feel like Twitter is not real life. It's meant to just be cathartic at some point. Like what, what do you make of people going back and rehashing athletes opinions from three years ago, five years ago, or comedians opinions for that matter? <laughs> I don't, I mean, I don't, I'm, I, I ain't fur it, you know, I'm not, I don't like it at all. As a general rule, it bothers me. People that like, people that go out and that this is what they do, like they go out of their way. And I'm not talking about you, Aaron, but you know, oh, I know, I know. Talking about people that go out of their way to go like years and years back in someone's social media history with the explicit purpose of finding something to crucify them with. Like, I just don't. I don't understand what drives somebody to do that. And it also, yeah, I find it upsetting when it comes to athletes in particular, I think it's messed up because usually this happens when they're about to get drafted, which means they're like 21 or 22 years old. You dig back to, you know, four or five years ago because I've thought and said so many times, I'm so glad Twitter didn't exist when I was in high school or YouTube or any of that stuff. Cause Oh my God, the like, but <laughs> But I'm saying these guys, they're 21 or 22 when you start the, you know, review of their social media and you get back four or five years, they're like 15 years old. <laughs> and they say some dumb shit on Twitter where they were 15 and people try to make a big deal out of that. And it's like, it's so ridiculous to me because I don't know, there shouldn't be that kind of a standard for a 15 year old, especially like enormously 
gifted athlete, like of course he is a dumbass and <laughs> not no, but like doesn't have the perspective on what you should and should not say. Just I don't know, but it, it it's not just the good thing about in sports is like as far as all that goes, they'll always drudge it up and bring it up and make it a big thing. But they usually get drafted and are fine anyway because it's like that quote from that Arizona Cardinals GM or whatever he said uh if Hannibal Lecter ran a 4-2 we'd classify him as having an eating disorder or whatever so like hey <laughs> you know yep, yep it it don't affect them if you're in my or our lineup you're like any kind of you know talking head or comedian or, sp- or sports personality or anything like that like you know they'll bury you with that stuff if yep. they can and yeah I think it's I think it's ridiculous and always have because it like presumes that people genuinely can't or don't change. You know what I mean? Which I just think is stupid. I mean, I, we we're talking earlier about how I'm trying to grow as a person just related to getting too upset over football <laughs> or whatever. Like people can, ch- especially, I think people change even if they don't mean to or want to, or even think about it. Like right. just the difference between somebody when they're in college, or like 21 or 22 and when they're 35, 36 and you know, married with a family or even not just with a career or whatever, like is colossal. Like you're not the same person. Even if you do your best not to change, you're going to change a little bit. I think it's ridiculous stringing people up over something from 10 plus years ago. Yeah. The cancel culture is just so real now. People did exactly what you said with the intent of making sure that you're bringing someone down or bringing something up. Like you said, when you're 14, and on Twitter, you're, you're, you're going to be a dumbass at some point. And in terms of like cancel culture, Trey, and how that kind of translates into other things for you, you've done a really good job of, without getting you know too political, of helping people realize that maybe they're on the same page more than they think that they are. How have, how have you gotten there? What do you think the best skills are for all of us to be able to, to do that? Is it just listening? Is it being willing to, you know, stop and explain? Like, how do you kind of teach people that maybe we aren't as polarized as we think? Well, I'm not, I'm not saying everybody does this, but one thing I think a lot of people are very prone to do without even thinking about it by default is whenever they meet somebody and find out that that other person is, on the other side of a particular issue or debate than they are, what they do in their minds is they automatically place them at the very extreme opposite end of that spectrum. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. they just assume they're like diehard, hardcore, you know, uh, something. uh, Yeah. What's the overzealous, the zealot, what's the word? They're like, you know, fundamentalist about it. Basically they're extreme in their beliefs about that particular thing. When in reality, almost no one is almost everybody wherever they identify on any on you know whichever side of a particular issue they are somewhere in the middle of that spectrum so usually people aren't as far apart as they think they are the example that I so I think if people would keep that in mind and try not to do that try not to just start out by assuming that the person is as far away from you as possible because they probably aren't then I think that would and they're probably doing the same thing to you by the way it happens on both sides people do that on both sides and I think if people would just stop doing that it would help a lot the example that I always use is going back to Salina in my hometown and hanging out with people I grew up with who are still my friends and like some of them are politically aligned with me and some of them are very much not and we're still buddies but like one time we were on a you know a houseboat on the lake or whatever and one of them come up to me and was like and he's like he's a family man works you know works full-time job he's like very much like an all-american dude and a great guy and he comes up to me and he's like I just don't understand why you believe that I shouldn't be able to own a gun you know and I was like I don't believe that Kobe like why 
why do you think I believe that? I've never said that. Like, I, I just think there are some people that shouldn't have guns. Like, if they're crazy or felons or whatever, they probably should have a gun. He's like, well, yeah, of course. We could, you know, of course those people shouldn't have a gun. Like, well, that's all I'm saying. Like, you, you know, and then we talk about it and realize that we, me and him pretty much agreed all, just about on every single thing about, like, gun control, you know. But he came into it thinking that I was going to yeah. show up with my band of liberal operatives in the middle of the night. <laughs> uh, yeah, just a, just a bunch of orgies coming for his guns. Um, yeah. let, let me, the pandemic is, has been, is, it's done a lot of things to a lot of people. We, we know all the effects and it's, it's going to be studied for a long time. I, I'm curious as a creative person, you know, we're here in Nashville with a ton of musicians that have not been able to play music. I actually got to see a concert over the weekend for the first time in person with my wife, socially distanced properly. And it was one of the most amazing things I've experienced. I got to watch Jason Isbell play guitar. But I'm curious what you think, like, are we going to have a major surge of art, whether it's books, literature, comedy in your sense, maybe it's music. I'm curious what the pandemic has done to the creative people that have been sort of in this weird you know, stasis at home all the time with such creativity sort of cir circling in their minds. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Uh, I do think there will be some of that, uh, but I think maybe not as much as you might think because, and I mean, I can't speak for anybody else for sure, but like, I, like for me and for, I think most comedians, when this first started, it would seem to uh, be a, just the reality that we weren't going to get to do any kind of stand-up comedy at all for a very, very long time, uh, which that still has remained the case for me, by the way. Like, actually, just for the record, unless this changes, which it very easily could, we I will be back at Zany's the weekend before Christmas this year doing, like, socially distant shows and whatnot. By the time that happens, that will be the first time I have stepped on stage, an actual physical stage, with one exception, the week before the pandemic kicked off in March, I did one show. And other than that, it will be the first time since the wow. year prior when I was at Zany's last December. So that's going to be wild. But um, anyway, <laughs> so I think there'll be a little bit of that, but pro probably not as much as like it might seem like. But we'll we'll see. So check out the check out the website, of course, TreyCrowder.com. You got the YouTube page. The socials are always great. You, you're sort of churning out content there. I, I saw you guys at Zany's last year, and I – for the life of me, I cannot remember. Do you guys drink during the show? Not like as a rule and not to excess. A lot of times, a lot of times, no, we don't drink at all. I think for that show, there, there was probably drinking going on because you saw we were doing like a Christmas thing right, extravaganza right. with a bunch of different stuff. But at the same time, not getting drunk though, because I mean, we have like costume changes and all this crap. We just dove into that. For the record, this this year at Zanies, we're not going to do that because of all, there's enough going on. And it's going to be enough for us just to get back on stage. You know what I mean? We don't want to have to worry about right. putting on a, a play, basically. We do drink sometimes during the show, but we don't ever, as a rule, get, like, hammered or nothing. Right. So is, what is your favorite form as far as, far oh, as comedy goes? In the moment, in the process of actually doing it, it's definitely stand-up, real-life stand-up on a stage in front of an actual audience, like, for sure. But in terms of just, like, I mean, I also really like doing the podcast and I've done, well, I've got the Well-Read podcast with the guys I tour with. I also have a new, um, like, topical podcast called Evening Skews that I'm doing live that's, like, political in nature. And I have fun doing all that stuff, too. And I also really like writing things. I have a suspicion that my very favorite thing might be, like, making stuff, like, shoot, you know, writing and then shooting some kind of script. I say I have a suspicion because 
no one out here will allow me to actually make anything yet. I've written all kinds of stuff, <laughs> but can't get the green light to actually shoot it. But I say I think that might be my favorite because it's the thing that I'm most dying to do. You know what I mean? So, so then we'll, what? What? Why the pivot? Because you guys have a, a, a documentary, um, Inherent Good. It's about sort of poverty and yeah. uh, universal income. What What is it about? You know, no topic is off limits for you, but this feels like it's a little bit of a pivot to some degree. Am I wrong in assuming that? And and then is that where you're talking about when you're talking about creating? No. Okay. Second part. No. When I talk about creating stuff, because like you said, Inherent Good is a documentary that I am a producer on and I'm featured in it, but I'm not the like creator or the director. It's a guy named Steve Forrest who did a great job. He's very talented. I got involved with that because I was just, I, it was an issue that I cared about and everything. And then as we got further into the process of making the documentary, my hometown became a bigger part of it because it kind of does serve as a good little case study for why we need something like this, in my opinion. And so then it became like sort of personal to me on that level. But anything that I would create myself, like any kind of show or movie, and I'm, right now it's all been TV that I've been attempting to do pilots and stuff. It, it, no, it would be a comedy. A comedy similar to the type of like, like stand up or whatever I do where it's like, right. it's fun. Hopefully, hopefully it's funny, but it also like has a point or has something to say. Inherent good the documentary is not at all a comedy. It's heavy, dramatic. It's all real. That's the thing is like, we thought about when making it Steve at first, you know, when I became involved, he's like, maybe you can inject some humor into this, but I'm, I've I, sometimes, man, you get into some stuff. And it's like, I'm not, I'm not going to make jokes about this, or I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to try to make this comedy don't work with everything. And some things are like, so just sad or real or heavy or whatever you want to put it that like, just trying to joke about it doesn't help anything. So I just try to apply the right approach to whatever the given subject is, if that makes sense. Like, I don't look at it as a, I don't feel the need to necessarily try to make everything funny or make a joke out of everything because I consider myself a comedian because some things shouldn't be treated that way, you know? So I kind of just approach it on a case by case basis, but anything that I come up with myself is going to be funny or at least hopefully be funny. <laughs> well, keep an eye on all the stuff you're working on, man. I, we, we wish you guys obviously the, the best of luck. I'm a big fan of what you guys are doing and final thoughts here for the audience. If you could give advice to young Tennessee fans and give advice to young comedians, what would those two pieces of advice be? For both of them, just uh, patience and don't give up hope because you're going to need a huge reserve of it that you're going to have to sit on for a long time before anything good ever happens. But when it does, you know, you'll be all right. Now, ten, young Tennessee fans, in my experience, you don't have a choice and you shouldn't have a choice. Like you're born into it and, my, you know, for the most part. And if you, if you have been and you, you know, switch sides, I'm not with that, uh, so I don't want to talk to those people. Like, you got to weather – I've been a fan of multiple bad teams my entire life. Like, you got to weather the storm, man, or I don't have respect for you as a sports fan. So, if you are a, Tennessee, a young Tennessee fan, you know, you can't help it. You are born that way. People shouldn't judge you for it. And <laughs> just stick it out. Yep. If you're a young comedian or creative type, the biggest advice I give people is – and it's what everybody says. It's cliche, but it's because it's true. You, you just the – only, the only advice is that you have to just do it. You have to start doing it and keep doing it. Because a lot of people talk like, yeah, I'd like to be a comedian someday or I want to be a writer and I've got these ideas. But, like, you have, to, you have to actually start doing it however you can. And right now, very hard time to start being a comedian. But eventually, things will go back to normal. There will be open mics and stuff like that. 
And that's all, that's the only advice. You just have to go and do it and do it over and over and over again. And, and remember, have patience because it will take a long time. Trey Crowder, always a pleasure, man. You can catch him basically everywhere, the internet, the YouTubes, the socials, the website, and hopefully back on stage in Nashville coming up in December. Yeah, right before Christmas. Right before Christmas. It's a great show. Uh, Recommend it. Thank you so much, man. We do appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Pleasure. Thank you. Want to say special thanks to Trey Crowder, of course, the liberal redneck. You can get to him on Twitter, at Trey Crowder, all his videos, the YouTube channel, TreyCrowder.com. He'll be coming to a stage near you, hopefully. Uh, and I hope we, we hope that we that brought a little levity to the... Uh, <laughs> Look, <laughs> I've what, seen him live. I saw him live at Zany's here in Nashville, and he's spectacular. What he, just happened? He's like a South Park character incarnated into real life. And, and he doesn't care. He will make fun of everybody and anything. It's, it's so funny. So I'm, I rarely am I speechless. And I, <laughs> I loved that. I loved every second of that. The, the drunk dialing, t- drunk texting T Martin long we're posting, paragraphs. We're posting a video clip of this because people need to see <laughs> what we saw. Yeah, that's true. We will. It, he is, he is a special, special bird. And, uh, I've gotten to know him over the years. Big Tennessee fan lives in Tennessee. And, and, uh, I, I've, just gotten lucky to get to know him and he's just an absolutely hilarious dude to paint this picture too he has like kind of wild facial hair going on and he's wearing a shirt that says just says all y'all in rainbow colors in rainbow colors (laughs) he is with a naked mannequin behind him dismembered dismembered Uh, he is a he's a one of a kind and again regardless of what you think about politics and the issues, you have to acknowledge how funny he is. You just, you have to acknowledge that. So he's reasonable uh, as well. Yeah. I hope everybody uh, uh, enjoyed that uh, for sure. All right. So again, review the show. If you get an, if we get 50 reviews and enough people want it, by the way, one of our old coworkers texted me this week and said, my brother listens to the show every single week. Loves your show and wants a drunk you and air. Cause you know, this coworker. Okay. Uh, shout out shouts to, to Matt Talaferro. So Matt, Matt Talaferro's, Tally. Tally's brother loves the show and wants a drunken rant. And so he reviewed the show. If enough real listeners do that, then I will do a drunken rant on Saturday night. So again, rate, review and subscribe, share the show, tell everybody about it. That's how we grow this thing. And we can keep bringing you guys fun guests like Trey and Chris uh, and uh, and have some fun. Maybe we can get Aaron's undercarriage fixed. You know, if you it's, guys can review the show. It's going to cost. <laughs> it's <laughs> the... The car doctor said it might cost the undercarriage might cost more than it's worth, which hurts. You know what I mean? Uh, nothing, nothing, nothing worse than a, a painful undercarriage. Um, this is my car. My car's broken. Um, the the under part That's of my car is loose. Yeah, no, I know. Just making sure if anyone comes in late. Um, I need a new car <laughs> slash undercarriage. <laughs> We said the that message, word more times yeah. on this show than I've well, ever used it. Listen, a loose undercarriage is a personal problem, and I want to make sure that, that you are taken care of. Well, it's you a know? public problem now. Yeah, very much so. Uh, and remember, kids, keep that undercarriage tight. That's all I got to say. I'm, Please rate, review, and subscribe. You can follow me on Twitter. My name's Braden Gall, at Braden Gall. Aaron Dugan, uh, Instagram, Aaron underscore Dugan. At the Aaron Dugan on Twitter, Twitter. All kinds of weird things this week. That'll be great. She'll love that. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks to Chris Lowe. Thanks to Trey Crowder. We had a great time. We'll be back next week on the Fringe Element here on the 440 Sports Network.